Welcome back to The Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. Dipping back into the theme of our money issue, I've got with me today William Kavanaugh, Professor of Catholic Studies and Director of the Center for World Catholicism and Intercultural Theology at DePaul University, to talk with Pete and me about the subject of his short but punchy book, Being Consumed, Economics and Christian Desire. So thank you so much for coming on. Can you just tell uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? Yeah, I've just sent off the manuscript of a book a couple of months ago to Oxford University Press. Uh, it should be available in the latter part of this year. But it's a book on idolatry, and in some ways it's a sequel to an earlier book I wrote called The Myth of Religious Violence, in which I argue that this idea that religion has a peculiar tendency to cause violence uh, more than so-called secular things uh, is problematic because people kill for all sorts of things that they treat as gods, like flags and money and oil and so on. Um, and so uh, even though there was no explicit or not much explicit theology in that book, I thought that I needed to come back and write a book about idolatry because that's kind of the theme is that people uh, treat all all sorts of things as if they were gods uh, and sacrifice uh, other people to them. Uh, and so I've finally finished this book on idolatry and uh, it's a kind of um, uh, interdisciplinary uh, work on um, uh, idolatry. So beginning with Max Weber and the idea that we live in a disenchanted world um, I argue in many ways that even Weber doesn't think that we live in a disenchanted world. And the second chapter is Charles Taylor, uh, who writes about the secular age, but I argue that in some ways even Charles Taylor doesn't, isn't convinced by that either. Um, and I look at the biblical material and Augustine and so on, and then have chapters on uh, nationalism and consumerism as idolatrous and uh, end with a chapter on sacrament. So probably a longer answer than you were looking for, but that's that's what I've been working on. I mean, it sounds like definitely something that we would probably want to uh, revisit at some point on this podcast. Um, but meanwhile, what we're talking about today is primarily your book, uh, Being Consumed, Economics and Christian Desire, which came out in 2008. And we don't normally do kind of like basically book talks about, you know, books that are whatever, the 15 years old. But... Um, this is kind of, this is an unusual case in the sense that, at least for me, um, this book was kind of an introduction to a lot of uh, what would later, what I would later call post-liberalism, or what would later be called post-liberalism in a political sense, but it's from, it's through an economic lens. And so the idea of, you know, a kind of substantive positive vision of freedom, um, freedom to do the good as opposed to freedom from constraint, I, it might be that I kind of ran into that idea first through, I, I can't even remember, this was like a while back and it was, you know, in the, the foggy days of like just post-conversion, me being very strange about everything. Um, but um, Dr. Kavanaugh looks at the idea of the free market as the market being, which is enabled to um, choose the good, essentially the market which which actually promotes human flourishing as opposed to the market which is free of constraint. And that is a really powerful kind of, I guess, vision or tool 
which I think is extremely fresh. And, you know, you've just mentioned that you're going to be doing a, a new edition of the book, which I look forward to a great deal. But meanwhile, everyone should read the current edition. Which I just read yesterday. And for our listeners, uh, we're going to get into a bunch of things, but one of them is this free market idea that most of us have grown up in a world that assumes it. Um, so Milton Friedman, Friedrich Hayek, and this idea still lives in our heads, uh, despite, you know, some post neoliberal, uh, you know, mood shifts in recent years. Uh, th this is the, this sort of natural state of affairs. And this is, uh, the way that assures greatest human flourishing, uh, that looks back at the last couple of centuries and sees uh, humankind, you know, uh, material and uh, also biological um, increases in flourishing as a grand confirmation of the idea that free markets uh, are the way to go. And that's how human beings should relate to each other. And that's the way that money should be handled in society. I realize it's a very rough version, but uh, we're going to look at what is free about free markets. And uh, I was so glad to read this book, which I don't know why I hadn't read before, because it's so central to so many things that we talk about on this podcast and in Plow. Can you just describe your argument covering not just free markets, but also um, the idea of detachment and attachment? Um, then globalism and localism and scarcity and abundance, um, as well as sort of free and unfree markets. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, part of the what I'm trying to do there is get beyond the binary of free market on the one hand and uh, state sponsored socialism on the other hand. So um, the we all talk about the free market as if there was such a thing as the free market. And then the alternative to that is um, state socialism. So if you are against the free market, then you must be a communist. And those are the only two choices that we have. And so I try to analyze what what is meant by a free market. And so I look at Milton Friedman's kind of classic definition of a free market and find that it's basically um, a market in which people are informed and their transactions are voluntary, meaning nobody's holding a gun to their head. And so freedom is defined negatively, uh, you know, as you were saying before, that it's just uh, as long as you're not being restrained, then it's free. And so if um, uh, you know, Guatemalan woman is being paid 50 cents an hour, as long as nobody's holding a gun to her head saying that she has to take the job, then, then the market is free. Um, she, uh, the, the, you know, it's, it's bilaterally informed, nobody's, uh, lying to her and the, it's, um, voluntary. She prefers to take the job over starving and the capitalist um, is entering into the relationship voluntarily expecting gain as well. Um, and so I argue that this is a really um, truncated version of what freedom actually is. So it, rather than just a negative view of freedom, uh, from a Christian point of view, freedom is more than just uh, absence of external constraint. 
but it's also uh, in a positive sense the ability to achieve a, a good end. So um, if I sit down at a piano and nobody is stopping me from playing the piano, I can play it and I'm free in the negative sense. But if I don't know how to play the piano, then I'm not free in a positive sense to play the piano and I'll just be banging on the keys. And so, um, so I look at Augustine, uh, who develops this idea of a kind of broader sense of freedom, and then look at um, the various ways in which the so-called free market is full of all kinds of uh, coercion, right? You know, we, we think that the Guatemalan woman is free uh, because she's so desperate that she has to take a job making 50 cents an hour or something like that. Uh, and that's not uh, a full definition of freedom. The game is, is rigged. And so uh, I try to develop the idea that there's a, a, a broader sense of freedom in which we need to uh, examine markets and ask uh, when is it that people are uh, flourishing people and the environment, um, all of the different uh, kind of actors involved, when is it that uh, this is leading towards freedom and flourishing for all, and when is it just a cover for um, a, a powerful person taking advantage of, a, of someone who's, who's less powerful? Uh, and those are the kind of criteria that we need to develop to, uh, to ask when is a market free? So the real question is not, are you for or against the free market? The real question is, when is a market free? And in order to answer that question uh, intelligently and, and realistically, we have to ask some of these deeper questions about when it is that people are actually flourishing. Could we talk a little bit about the world in which uh, that ideology of the, the free market came into being. I mean, obviously it was in reaction to something. Hayek was first writing uh, around a time when uh, political freedom was uh, in question or <laughs> didn't exist uh, in, in the Europe he came from. And so there was, there was a, a reason for free market ideology to develop in the way it did. Yeah, I suppose that's right. I mean, if again, if your only choices are um, the system that we have in the U.S. or the system that they had in the Soviet Union or Nazi Germany, then clearly um, what we've got is better, uh, I think, than uh, than what they had in the Soviet Union uh, or Nazi Germany. Right. So um, if those are the only two choices, if you've got totalitarianism on the one hand, and this other kind of freedom on the other hand, then, um, then sure, um, I'm, I, I'm certainly not uh, interested in endorsing any kind of uh, state socialism. Uh, but, um, and so in, in some ways that's, that's understandable. Um, but I think we can do a, a lot better than that. And part of the problem is these kind of triumphalist uh, narratives just ignore all of the people that are um, poor and exploited uh, in the current system. So about, mm, I don't know, maybe about the time the um, 
the book came out, there was, uh, or maybe a little bit later, this is probably 10 years ago, there was a study done that claimed that a billion people had been lifted out of poverty uh, over the last, I, I forget what the, you know, the last 30 years or something uh, by capitalism. And it was a story that has been repeated over and over and over again about the triumph of free market capitalism that had lifted a billion people out of poverty. But if you look at the um, at what's actually being claimed, there are all sorts of problems with this. One is that 80% of those people came from two countries, India and China. And China, of course, is a communist country, right? And so the, the, the kind of claim of triumph of free market capitalism uh, is is a very odd claim to make about a communist country. Um, a second problem with it is that it's based on the standard of a dollar and ninety cents of income per person per day uh, as the poverty line, and so suddenly people were making more money than a dollar ninety per person per day, and this was uh, uh, technically lifting people out of uh, poverty. And a lot of experts think that the, the standard needs to be much higher than that, um, probably $7. Some, some have suggested $7.80 uh, per person per day as a true measure of what uh, being lifted out of extreme poverty uh, would mean. $1.90 a day is not much um, for, you know, to feed and educate and clothe and everything else that a person needs. Um, and the third problem with this uh, um, triumphalistic myth is that uh, it's based on cash income. And so it was, it was looking at the way in which people all over the world had been pushed out of subsistence farming, uh, a lot of them in India and China and elsewhere in the world, um, pushed out of subsistence farming and into wage labor. And so technically, they're making more cash money than they were before, but they're not necessarily better off. And in many uh, places, they were worse off. Uh, they've gone from a, a dignified subsistence farming to uh, factory work in which they're making, in some cases in China, you know, 50 cents an hour uh, and so on, and are, you know, a little better than, than wage slaves. And so there's, there's so much kind of triumphalism about this idea of the free market that I think um, we need to uh, to look at this askance and and uh, come up with better better measures of human flourishing. You know, one of the powerful uh, sections of your book um, begins with the question, is uh, Rosa Martinez free? Uh, Rosa Martinez is someone you describe, and it's one of the things I love about the book is that you're it's tied to these human realities. Uh, a woman that you report on from El Salvador who's making 33 cents an hour. Right, yeah, I actually got that example from, um, it was a, uh, uh, an advertisement in a trade magazine aimed at uh, U.S. Uh, um, textile companies, basically saying, take your, uh, take your business uh, move it from the United States to Central America, where you can pay people uh, as little as 33 cents an hour. And this is being um, advertised as a, you know, a great advantage for American companies. 
one of the other things that's really sort of helpful about your book is that, you know, as you mentioned, you are not a proponent of state socialism. And yet you do offer concrete examples of the way that Christians um, might engage in economic practices that actually do promote human flourishing and that are uh, that do sort of follow the idea that, um, you know, there is a positive freedom, there's a there's an ability to do the good that economic uh, exchange ought to promote. And a lot of these are like, things, again, that I had just learned about in like 2011 or so. Um, you talk about Focolare, you talk about um, the Mondragon Corporation um, in Spain. This is sort of like, these are, I would call them neo-distributist um, ideas. Uh, can you talk about what that, you know, it's often been called third way economics, what that would look like concretely other than capitalism or socialism? What, what could that look like? Yeah, I, I, I should first of all say probably that um, uh, I think I've become, since the book was published, maybe a little less uh, uh, doctrinaire about not looking for state interference in the market. I think I would say now, uh, I mean, I, I say early on in the book, um, I asked the rhetorical question, am I advocating for state intervention in the market, and I simply say no. Um, but I think what I might want to say uh, today is that, yeah, there are certain forms of um, state intervention in the market uh, that that can uh, and are useful. Um, but, um, uh, but that's not the, I mean, but ultimately, I also argue that um, the state and the business corporation have become so uh, fused, really, that um, we shouldn't look to the state to protect us from the market, or, or yeah, protect us from the corporation, because in a lot of ways they've uh, they've become one. So I, I, I think I might want to nuance that uh, a little bit. But what I'm really after is forms of uh, business that operate as a community. Uh, and so, um, uh, I mean, part of the, one of the problems with us kind of progressive Christians is that uh, we oftentimes fall into the, the trap of thinking that, you know, that business is, is in and of itself tainted. And I think that's a kind of you know, naive and simplistic way of going about it. So part of what I try to do in the book is point to actual examples uh, of businesses being operated on Christian principles. And so you mentioned the Mondragon Corporation in Spain, which is a really big multi-billion dollar corporation, but it's worker owned. It was founded by a Basque priest uh, in the 1940s, I think it was, and based on these kinds of principles of Catholic social teaching, uh, that um, any kind of business, the the point is not just profit for the shareholders, but is uh, the flourishing of all people involved. And so, the highest paid uh, person in the corporation can't make any more than seven times the lowest paid. Uh, the ratio in American business is more like 400 to one. Um, and so, um, uh, and, you know, making useful, good products, 
uh, in a way that uh, has the interests of the workers in mind and is not, I mean, part, part of the, the, what the distributists were about was overcoming the class divide between the capitalists and the workers such that um, the workers would be owners and uh, the fruits of their labor would not simply be going to others who may or may not do any work at all and still reap the profits uh, of it. So there's all kinds of different um, examples. I try to give a lot of examples of this in the book. And, and when I uh, do a second edition of the book, I, I want to update that uh, as well. But the whole fair trade movement, I think, is a, another uh, example of this is um, you don't simply offer products to the consumer uh, in a way that's blind to the processes that bring the products to your doorstep, but you actually um, voluntarily uh, think about um, how the products are produced and who gets paid what, and voluntarily, in some cases, pay more for a product in orders that um, uh, these kind of relationships might be just. In the book, you actually address head on uh, one of the most frequent you know, objections to, say, the fair trade movement, and probably some of these other examples uh, that you mentioned of, of businesses operating by Christian principles, uh, which is that this is just another form of, of free market capitalism. Uh, fair trade is just one more niche product uh, where you pay a little extra um, for an, an extra serving of uh, good conscience on top <laughs> right. of the product that you're yeah, buying. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it can be, right? I mean, uh, these can be uh, self-serving efforts to um, just appease our conscience. I read an article uh, recently describing fair trade as a, just one more uh, kind of fetishism of commodities uh, even though it's intended to kind of overcome the fetishism of commodities, what you've actually done is just produced another commodity that is going to save the world. Um, and, and I think that's a powerful critique and it needs to be, um, it needs to be addressed. I mean, ultimately, I think that, uh, the fair trade movement is, uh, is an important kind of movement, but it can't be uh, a, a token movement, right? You can't think that you've solved the world's problems by buying a bar of fair trade chocolate if you spend the rest of your purchases on you know, Amazon and, and don't care uh, about where things come from and who's getting paid what. Um, so um, in the new book actually uh, that's coming out, I have a section on this and talk about um, the, the possibility of thinking of uh, fair trade purchases as penance uh, and not as kind of virtue signaling and so on. But um, it's one small act of, of penitence for the structures um, from which we benefit and the structures that we've created. Um, but as Pope Benedict XVI uh, argues in Caritas and Veritate, these sorts of efforts can't be left to be niches in the economy, but they have to evangelize the whole economy. And so ultimately, um, fair trade needs to be not just uh, this, you know, little, you know, niche 
uh, hobby, uh, kind of, you know, a, a little uh, charitable slice of the economy, but it needs to be the way that we think about the entire economy. One of the things that's sort of strikingly different about the, between the time that you wrote this and today is that, um, so one of your, your chapters is on the tension between globalism and localism, and you, you know, predictably don't kind of choose one over the other, but back in you know back when this was this came out globalism the anti-globalism movement was largely a movement of the left and today there is still some of that left but so much of the you know so much of the new nationalist um energy comes from a kind of anti-globalism um have you i just i'm just interested to sort of know what you think about that like what happened and what do you do you think there's like um can we see something good in the sort of nationalist, uh, anti-globalist adoption of anti-globalism? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I have a, a chapter on nationalism in the book that's coming out. Um, and there's certainly, uh, I mean, there are virtues in, in nationalism or virtues that nationalism is parasitic on anyway. Um, and there are certainly virtues in um, the kind of anti-globalist movement that has gotten associated with populism and, and the right. Um, I mean, they're identifying real problems. One of the problems is that, um, you know, good, good jobs are being shipped elsewhere uh, and people are being paid peanuts. And a lot of people in the United States are, are hurting from that. And, um, and I think that's, you know, that's, they have identified a real problem and a real issue. Unfortunately, the, the uh, reaction to this has gotten skewed so that um, it's, it, it's kind of co-opted by nationalism. And so the concern is not that working class people are being taken advantage of. The concern is that working class people, usually meaning white working class people in the United States are being disadvantaged uh, by this. And, and that's a problem, right? And so nationalism, as it so often does, is a way of distracting from class um, analysis, right, of class awareness that what's really going on is that uh, people with money, capitalists are taking advantage of people without money, right? Without any uh, access to the means of production who have nothing to sell but their labor. And so if you can pay someone a dollar an hour as opposed to $20 an hour, you're going to, to take advantage uh, of that power differential. And what nationalism does then is just distract from uh, from any kind of realistic analysis of capitalists and workers, and simply puts it in national terms. And so you ask, uh, you know, is NAFTA good or bad for the United States? Uh, are these trade agreements uh, with Asia good or bad for the United States? Well, the real question is, who is it good for, and who is it? bad for, right? Is it good or bad for capitalists? Is it good or bad for uh, workers? But we put it in these kind of nationalist terms. And so uh, rather than uh, 
a kind of solidarity of American workers with, you know, exploited Mexican workers. Um, we see them, you know, we're encouraged to see uh, them as the enemies, uh, whereas the, the real uh, enemy in a lot of ways is uh, the kind of shareholder class that is only concerned about maximizing uh, profits and not with uh, paying a living wage. There's also obviously a way that, um, this is a little bit corollary, corollary to what you said, there's a way that a kind of anti-liberalism um, or anti-economic liberalism um, inflected through nationalism can actually just turn into like libertarianism in one country. So, you know, there's a free market, there's, there, there aren't social, um, there's not like an increased social safety net. It's just, there, there's also, there's protectionism as well. Um, as lo- you know, along with an internally free market. Um, I d- like, <laughs> I do keep kind of, my grandparents were um, Trotskyists as many sort of, I don't know, silent generation Jews were. And my father kind of was raised on a lot of wobbly propaganda. And every now and then I do kind of reinvent like the IWW in my head. And I'm like, yeah, I think we probably, yeah, that'd probably help. I'm not sure if it's going to work, but... Um. (laughs) (laughs) just a little housekeeping don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on itunes we'll be back with the rest of pete's and my conversation with dr kavanaugh after the break so one of the powerful things uh in this first chapter of your book on uh the free market and, and freedom is that it doesn't just highlight uh the supply side, so, uh, so to speak. I mean, I, th- I hope it's easy to see that uh, Rosa Martinez working for a few cents an hour uh, in El Salvador sewing um, products that are sold for, for, for way more in the United States. Um, that, that's not real freedom if the alternative is that our kids starve. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you'd hope that it, it's obvious that somebody toiling uh, in a Foxconn factory making iPhones and sleeping um, eight to a room in a company dormitory in China, that that's not something that somebody would do truly freely, right? But you also talk about the lack of freedom on the demand side, uh, that f- free market ideologues assume that our consumer choices, what we choose to buy, express our real desires and uh, just take at face value that what we buy is what we really want um, and what's good for us. And could you talk a little bit about the unfreedom of consumer desire? Yeah. I mean, um, there's all sorts of ways in which um, desire is not something that we just have, but it's, shaped by forces outside of us. Milton Friedman uh, treats desire um, kind of agnostically and says, you know, people want what they want and you gotta give people what they want and that's that's freedom. But in a lot of ways, um, wants don't just kind of uh, spring up within a person, but they are creations of um, these larger forces from outside of a person. And that's true of 
as as true of me as it is from anybody else right we all think that our our desires are just our desires but they're they're kind of manufactured in a lot of ways um by these external forces one of which of course is um, marketing and advertising uh, more specifically and there there's a whole kind of uh, industry that's made to kind of mold our desires in a certain way and it's interesting that the whole um, uh, marketing industry comes into uh, into effect precisely at the point in which um, uh, the products are being um, detached and disassociated uh, from from labor, right? And so uh, it, it, most of the things that people had up until the industrial revolutions were people that they made themselves, and then we made, uh, then we moved to um, buying things rather than uh, making things. And this is a huge difference in the way that we deal with the material world. And so up until the late 19th century, um, products were still really embedded in um, networks of community. And so most things were produced kind of locally. You either produced them themselves or you knew who produced them or at least knew the people that you bought them from. And so you would go down to the store and the storekeeper would scoop oats out of a barrel and you know sell shirts and chairs and so on you know most of which were probably uh, manufactured locally as we begin to move further away from that kind of economy then you've got to personify products and so this is what um, marx was talking about with the fetishization of commodities so that um, now suddenly oats in the late 19th century have a face it's the Quaker Oats man and so on. And the argument that you find in historians of marketing is that when products are kind of disembedded from these networks of, of community, then you have to personify the products uh, in order to uh, appeal to, to people. And so now you've got Tony the Tiger and you've got Michael Jordan, and my baloney has a first name, it's O-S-C-A-R, and all of that sort of thing. Well, my baloney has a first name because the people that make it now are anonymous and invisible to me. And so what Marx meant by the fetishization of commodities was the kind of animation of commodities at the same time that life was being sucked out of the people actually making the products because they're working horrible hours in factories and they're completely kind of um, out of our out of our sight and so this isn't just a choice where we are kind of in this whole economy now where especially with the advent of um, uh, online purchases so all we see when we go on to amazon.com is products we don't see people we don't have to have any contact with people at all you just see a product you click on it and then it appears on your doorstep magically 
And so people have been completely erased from the um, from what the consumer sees. And so, of course, we um, are apt to forget that these come from real places with real uh, environmental uh, consequences, uh, that the people that are making them or the people that are delivering them or working in an Amazon warehouse might be overworked and underpaid and so on. But we're encouraged to forget all of that because we never knew it in the first place. All you see are products and the products have personality. You know, the, the packages on the Amazon commercials kind of sing and dance, but the people have been uh, erased. And so we are choosers that we are free choosers, but we're free choosers in this situation of profound ignorance. Uh, and so that's one of the ways then that um, our choices are not entirely free because any information that we might have or we might want about the people that come in contact with the products all the way up the line uh, is deliberately uh, withheld from us. And so we have relationships with products rather than relationships with people. And, and that's, I, I mean, that's, I guess, a segue to, to chapter two, because it's that detachment that I'm talking about in, in chapter two. It is probably helpful to just sort of say just on the off chance that we have any like remaining Reaganites or libertarian Christians who are listening to us, which seems incredibly unlikely to me. <laughs> but because <laughs> I think they, we've... they probably tuned out once you said Trotsky. I mean, you know what? I think we've probably I just if they have any kind of parasocial relationship with us at all. Um, I just don't think that would probably be very likely. We, we love our Reaganite listeners, and we look forward to your responses. We love our Reagan. We do. We do love them. We we love you with as brothers and sisters. Um, but it, you know, this is something that it obviously it is exacerbated by the consumer consumerism and the consumer economy. But the problem of sort of un, unbridled or illicit or wrongly ordered desire is the Augustinian problem. This is, you know, this is a problem of the fall. Um, and th that shouldn't like prevent us from saying at the same time, hey, we also have a kind of economy that seems particularly geared towards uh, messing with that particular aspect of the fall and encouraging it. So like you can just as easily say like lust is not the product of capitalism, but or the, the product of the internet, but that shouldn't let us close our eyes to the fact that OnlyFans is really bad. Like the the economic and material and technological ways that, you know, old school sin is encouraged in us shouldn't, you know, we should, there's not like a battle between this is, this has a material cause that's, or an economic cause that's, that's modern. And this is an old problem because there's nothing really original in any sin. Um, I, I guess is what I, I mean. Can say. we dive into the the Augustine a little? Um, because th yeah, there's a, you know, you point out in in the Christian tradition there is a solution to the fact that we are not the masters of our own desire, and uh, that our desires can be really, really bad. In fact, can be the root of of all sin. I mean, Augustine talks about the desire for dominance, this libido dominandi, that animates our lives unless it's supplanted by something else um so what is the something else and sort of what is augustine's 
way of, of talking about good desire and bad desire. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, he recognizes that it's a social, uh, um, creation, right? Um, so when he talks in the confessions about how he would not have stolen the pears had he not been in a group, that's part of what he's talking about, right? That, um, that desire is not something that just, uh, wells up inside of us from somewhere, but it's a, it's, it's a social production. And in that sense, I think he would be right on board with Rene Girard's idea that all desire is mimetic, right? That it's, it's um, uh, imita imitative of what other people desire. It's a kind of uh, social product. So, um, so the solution to disordered desire also needs to be a social product. And that's what he thinks the church is for, right? It, it happens in community and it doesn't just happen because people get together, but people have to have a good end uh, and that end is God, right? That um, ultimately all of the stuff that we pursue in this life uh, can be good and beautiful. And he talks about the attraction that we have to things because they're beautiful, because a beautiful God has made them and that's all good. But if we treat them as if they are the ultimate things, then uh, ultimately we kind of turn into nothing because we lose touch with the, the, the root of our being, which is God. And so um, what we need to do is uh, use things uh, on our way to God, um, uh, serving, serving God, serving other people, uh, delighting in the beauty of life, but always seeing them as penultimate to the higher end, uh, which is God. And the, the, the people that are going to train us in that way of thinking and way of seeing are the um, other people in the, the church that are going to um, kind of act as this, um, you know, Sinners Anonymous uh, that are gonna um, help us uh, to heal through their own uh, brokenness. I mean, it always struck me that you know, Augustine's description of of wrong desire and how it can be healed can sound, um, you know, a, a bit abstract. But when he talked about the Christian community, the church, being the place where our desires are healed, um, he himself, of course, actually practiced this. I mean, he founded a community. He renounced all his possessions. He uh, wrote a rule, you know, the rule of St. Augustine, uh, that quotes Acts 2 and 4, um, and uh, speaks of how the first believers at Pentecost in Jerusalem uh, shared all things in common, and, and he emphasized uh, this principle of, of from each according to their ability to each according to their need, but not as state socialism. And, uh, you know, th this was a man who knew what, and what he was talking about. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a, that's a really good point. Um, and, and he is just drawing on probably an idealized account of the early Christian community in Acts 2 and 4, but um, nevertheless, a kind of normative account of the early Christian community 
in which the ideal is um, having all things uh, in common so that um, everyone is taken care of and so that um, uh, the, the life of, of you know, the sacraments and praising God in the temple uh, becomes the, the point. I think that um, you're, I mean, the subtitle, the subtitle of the book is, an, is it an economics of Christian desire? Is that the subtitle? Something like that. Yeah, something like that. I just, it, um, this along with, uh, do you know David Schindler, DC Schindler? Does that name ring a bell? Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, he, I, I know you're kind of like left-wing coded and he's kind of right-wing coded, but at the same time, like Schindler's work and yours both kind of seem to me to point to um, you know, when I get a little bit too rationalistic in my Thomism and I'm like, well, I just need to like rationally decide what the, the, you know, good is and then, uh, you know, make sort of hack my habits so that I choose it and then I will desire to choose it after I choose it repeatedly because that's how habits are built. Um, that can get very kind of depressing and like, like a grind and both your work and Schindler's sort of remind me that desire is at the heart of these things that you know you actually can attend to beauty and let beauty you know point you in the right direction as long as you don't get like hijacked by it and so I mean like the really kind of trashy version of this would be something like you know seek first um if you seek first the I don't know anthropology window display you'll lose even that but seek first the kingdom of God and the anthropology window display will be added to you, which probably is not true. You probably are not, you know, if you sort of live as a Christian, you're not necessarily going to get all the consumer beauty that you want. But at the same time, just as someone who is very uh, subject to good marketing and I look inside myself and I see desire for like nice anthropology clothes. um, (laughs) It's, it's also true that like, I'm just, again, kind of thinking back to the time in my life when I was first thinking about this stuff. And you you do kind of realize in a concrete way, like, okay, what I'm wanting as I'm like wandering through Harvard Square and looking in all these windows and seeing all these attractive, you know, attractively presented clothes is something that's not like if I buy those clothes and I bring them home, the thing that was offered to me is not going to be in those clothes. And you do kind of eventually get to this goofy place where you're like, oh, actually, I kind of do think that really good marketing does point me towards the kingdom of God as long as I let it. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Huh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a good point. You know, um, I have a in this chapter on consumer culture in the new book, I have uh, I start out with a kind of sympathetic take on consumer culture and drawing on um, Mary Douglas, who was, you know, Catholic anthropologist. uh, And she points out that, you know, people always uh, make meaning by arraying uh, products around, you know, material things around them from you know the 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 most um, so-called primitive societies to uh, the most modern is that we always kind of um, make meaning by uh, displaying uh, products to ourselves and to one another and so on in different ways. 
and this is who we are as material beings, and this is not necessarily bad. And so I want to start out with a kind of sympathetic uh, recognition that that's the case, and all these kind of you know moralistic finger wagging at uh, consumer culture uh, isn't going to do any good if we try to ignore um, who we are. Um, but part of the problem is that um, uh, like Baudrillard has this wonderful thing where he talks about Melanesian natives um, noticed that these flying machines that went overhead would never land for them. They would only land for white people. And so they made um, the kind of simulacra of airplanes and a landing strip out of branches and leaves and so on, and then waited for the planes to descend. And Baudrillard says, this is what we all do in consumer culture. We kind of put out these uh, sham products and, and wait for happiness to come down out of the sky uh, to us. And so it just, a lot of it depends on what we're looking for and the kind of meanings that we're seeking to uh, portray. And so the definition of beauty gets changed, right? Um, you see some of these beautiful clothes but then if you actually kind of start poking around into how the clothes were manufactured and who brought them to you and who's profiting and who's not and so on, they end up looking rather ugly. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, Balthazar talks about how if you look at Jesus on the cross, it's very ugly, uh, this man being tortured to death, but there's something beautiful about the self-sacrificial love that you see there, that your um, your definition of what's beautiful gets um, gets changed. It gets turned around, um, and so beauty, I think, is really uh, important and necessary for uh, uh, for us humans. But it just all depends on what we're kind of trained to see as beautiful and what actually is beautiful. Susanna, I know you wanted to talk about the second chapter of this book uh, on detachment and attachment. Yeah. Which brushes up against many <laughs> of the things we've just been talking about. Yeah. Do, are we, so can you just sort of give us a, um, uh, an overview of your argument in that? Yeah. Um, gosh, uh, you might have to help me out because I can't remember exactly. But the basic argument is that we think that consumerism is about attachment to things, right? And then it's materialism. It's materialism, right? We we um, uh, right exactly that um, we are overly attached to things, and we need to be detached from things. And I argue the opposite that in fact um, consumer culture has to do with detachment. Um, and it's detachment from um, products, it's detachment from production, and it's detachment from producers, right? Products in the sense that we're always encouraged not to not to become too attached to things, but uh, you know, we, we, we shouldn't get too attached to the iPhone that we have because the next version is coming along in another six months and we got to have the new one right so we're always encouraged to to keep our desire moving on to the next thing because if we actually got attached to our products then then 
um, it wouldn't be very profitable. We always need to want the next thing. Um, and we try to repair our iPhones, which would be disastrous. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then it's it's de so it's detachment from products in that sense. It's detachment from production because we don't make anything, uh, and we don't even see uh, where products are made. They just uh, come from elsewhere and appear on our doorstep. Uh, and so we, you know, the, we have no idea um, how production takes place, and again, who's benefiting and who's not, and what's happening to the environment, and so on. We just click, and the things appear on our doorsteps. So detachment from production, and then detachment finally from producers, right? Especially, we just don't see Rosa Martinez or any of the other people, the people in the garment industry in Sri Lanka uh, now who, according to a recent report, they make $54, the minimum wage is $54 a month in uh, in Sri Lanka uh, for garment workers. And uh, and so we just don't see them. They're, uh, they're just invisible to us. So we're, we're encouraged uh, to be detached from all of these uh, different kinds of things. And so um, so it's not materialism at all. It's a, it's a, a uh, kind of immaterialism. The um, and so the in place of these attachments, what we get is this kind of spiritual flight from reality, flight from materiality. I, I illustrate this to my students with a series of shoe advertisements, and so the first one I show them is uh, it's a an old um, kind of hanging sign from the late 19th century. And it just says, it's a picture, it's a, in the shape of a boot and it just says James H. Johnson on it. And so there's an advertisement saying, you know, if you want shoes, you can buy shoes here. Uh, and the next one is uh, um, an advertisement from Regal Shoes of Boston in 1909, where it has paragraphs of dense text explaining uh, how the manufacturing process that they've come up with um, makes it so that the, um, the shoe doesn't shrink over the instep. And it's got a long explanation of this and why the product is superior. And so now you've got a kind of, um, you know, it, it, um, uh, magification of the product uh, itself, concentration on the product itself and how it's going to bring, you know, bring you uh, happiness, but it's still kind of very much concentrated on the material qualities of the product. And the next one is from 1972, and it's a naked woman lying on the floor admiring a man's shoe, and it only has five words, keep her where she belongs. Or is that five? How many words is that? Keep her where she'd be like, yeah, that's fine. Um, <laughs> and so now the shoe, the, there's no attempt to explain the qualities of the shoe. It's just an attempt to associate the shoe with these pathetic male fantasies of power and sex and so on. Uh, and then the final shoe advertisement is just uh, um, a black square with white lettering that says, write the future, and it has the Nike swoosh on it. So now the shoe has vanished entirely, and it's just this um, 
vague admonition to kind of be the author of the future. Uh, and so the the shoe, so the desire over the course of the century has just taken flight from material objects into this kind of ethereal uh, web of uh, fantasy. And and that I think is the true story of um, of how uh, of the the kind of economy that we're dealing in. It's it's dematerialized, and it's become a kind of new religion. And so that's uh, that's what I mean by calling it idolatry. I'd like to change the topic a bit to a later chapter in your book on globalization and localism. Uh, Many of our listeners and plow readers probably think of themselves as localist or sort of localist friendly. Uh, and what's intriguing to me about uh, your discussion of this is that it's not anti-globalization, uh, but you take some care to talk about uh, what globalization is and the good and bad forms of it. Um, there's a, a, a a sentence in there that kind of is stuck in my mind that globalization is a parody of true Catholicity. So could you talk about that? Um, because it seems to me that, uh, you know, one-sidedly being localist has its own problems. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. Um, and the, the problem is a kind of parochialism, right? That we don't care about what's, going on in Africa or Ukraine or wherever it might be, um, that we just become insular and just turn our backs on the rest of the world. And, um, and that's certainly a possible temptation of, um, of localism. Uh, the problem with globalism is the opposite temptation to think of ourselves as universal subjects who kind of um, can drop in on any part of the world and understand uh, their problems. I remember being struck by this at a dinner party when I was just out of graduate school where people were talking about what ought to be done about Kosovo and me thinking, I don't even, I mean, none of us knew where Kosovo was. Uh, I'd never heard of it, you know, uh, until a couple of weeks ago when it hit the news and now we think, that we have the right to opine on what ought to be done uh, about it. And so there's this kind of um, universities, especially encourage us to think of ourselves as universal subjects who can drop in on anybody around the world and understand them and figure out what's good for them. Um, you know, we're always being admonished to go out and change the world. And I think, uh, you know, the world has had enough of well-meaning Americans trying to change it. So um, trying to find a, uh, a balance between these two things, it's not kind of going down the middle, I think, but it's rather finding the universal in the local. And that's the idea of, um, of Catholicity that I kind of draw on from uh, some of the early Christian thinkers, this idea that the Eucharist is, um, is the whole of reality in a very particular, you know, piece of bread uh, in 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 one sense, uh, and this is what the the body of Christ uh, is. You know, um, Paul talks about the whole church being present uh, in the local uh, community, 
and uh, and that's the same with the the Eucharist. The whole Christ is there uh, in the Eucharist, even though the whole Christ is also a kind of cosmic uh, reality. And so, um, trying to find a, a a way of speaking about um, globalism uh, in this more kind of Catholic uh, way. That's what I'm after in that chapter. Um. The last chapter, which we can sort of like touch on, um, is is focuses on scarcity and abundance. Um, can you just sort of give the listeners a little bit of a taste of what you're getting into there? Right. Yeah. Yeah. The concrete universal. I'm talking about um, the way that economics is often defined in terms of scarcity. Um, that there's a you know a a certain there's a limited finite uh, amount of goods that are out there and we have to kind of figure out how to distribute them uh, in uh, in this kind of way of scarcity. Um, but uh, finding instead that the message of um, Christ is a message of abundance, right? I, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And trying to understand that not in the way of the prosperity gospel where you know more stuff is being promised uh, to us if we're faithful enough and send enough donations to the preacher um, but rather um, this idea that um, that we we all have enough I think Peter Morin I think has something like this is that um, uh, if if everybody takes less than everybody will have more or something like that. You know, I guess um, uh, Ignacio Eacuria talks about a civilization of poverty um, by which he doesn't mean a civilization uh, of, you know, relative scarcity, um, but he means a civilization in which nobody claims uh, things as their own, but is ready to kind of share them uh, amongst others in their need, uh, which sounds like a really radical idea, but it's actually Aquinas uh, too, right? The, that um, uh, we should think about um, material goods as being common. The kinds of goods that actually are naturally common goods so that, that you can't enjoy, you literally can't enjoy by yourself. So for example, the good of being a friend or being at a party you can't like take that off by yourself and enjoy it because that's not the kind of thing it is. Um, and one of the things that it seems to me that Christian economics kind of calls us to is try, try to enter into an imaginative state where that's kind of true of everything to a certain degree, where there, where private goods, you know, movable goods, like a piece of cake or whatever is a kind of opportunity to enter into a communion with other people by sharing it. Yeah, I, um, the story that I tell at the beginning uh, of that chapter uh, is, um, it's a st I was living in a poor neighborhood of Santiago, Chile for a couple of years when I was in my 20s. Um, and it was a, a woman named Rosalinda who um, made little, you know, crocheted birds and other things. Um, for for a living um and she one of the first times i was with her she gave me one of those and i wanted to um 
give her money for it and then I realized that that would have been the wrong thing uh, to do because it would reestablish the boundaries between me and her and kind of annul her gift by turning it into a transaction. And, you know, so, but other, I mean, other people I think have rightly criticized that's the way I tell that story um, because you can't, you can't stop there. I mean, she, she needed money, right? Um, and so there's got to be a, a sense in which um, you can't just sentimentalize this and say, oh, the, you know, the boundary between us has been broken down, um, but it actually has to be, uh, you know, enacted in, in, in real kind of uh, economic uh, terms. And, uh, but ultimately, what we say, I, I mean, I think your point is exactly right. What we talk about is economic terms are not, ne they're never just economic terms, right? They're always um, the kind of sharing of goods that ultimately are not uh, just monetary, but uh, much, much larger than that. There's so much in there uh, that we haven't covered or have only sort of lightly grazed on. So we basically encourage you, our dear listeners, to read it. And then also, uh, you know, the the footnotes give a full reading list on the Christian tradition is teaching on these topics, so there's a lot more to dive into. Um, but, you know, you mentioned that, you know, you don't exclude the state as having, you know, a role to play here, um, but that primarily this is not about calling for, you know, the state to do this or policy change X, Y, or Z. Um, it's within community that these kind of Christian principles of of good economics can play out. So if people are listening to this podcast, maybe just intrigued by these ideas, what are some of the sort of concrete things people can do to practice uh, a, a way in which, you know, the market is truly free? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, there, there are certain kinds of advocacy for state intervention, I suppose, which are um, useful uh, and good. But the problem is that it just it gets us off the hook too easily. And so we think of the economy as being this thing out there that only the state has control over and that we just, you know, if, for us, it's just like the air that we breathe. But in actual fact, the economy is just what we do with our lives on Earth, right? It's just how we live. It's the way we live out our material being. And so it's something that we all have to be um, directly uh, concerned with. And so it's a matter of, I think, trying to overcome uh, those detachments, the detachments to uh, products detachment from production and de detachment from uh, producers, right? And so um, overcoming detachment from products might mean um, uh, buying things that are uh, making things if we can, or buying things that are going to last rather than or being content with the things that we have and not being 
constantly trying to move on uh, to the next thing, um, being uh, overcoming detachment to production uh, might mean um, trying to uh, overcome uh, the way in which um, the whole process of production is invisible uh, to us. Um, fair trade, I think, is one of those examples. And this also gets at the overcoming the detachment from producers uh, as well, um, trying as much as possible to um, humanize uh, the economic transactions that we participate in. And th this can be uh, everything from starting a, a business that operates on these kinds of principles to um, patronizing the kinds of businesses that operate uh, on these uh, sorts of principles. Um, there's, you know, th there's a, all different kinds uh, of examples that, uh, that I give in the book uh, for this, but ultimately, um, you know, forming co-ops, um, banking, not with large conglomerates, but with small uh, credit unions, um, putting retirement funds in uh, ESG kinds of, um, you know, it's kind of low level, small businessy kind of mutual funds as you can find. Um, there's a, a, a million different ways, but it, it requires uh, a certain amount of awareness uh, about um, the actual material lives that we're living. And we're so often encouraged to uh, forget about um, our material lives and it all becomes uh, very material. So it, it can be, it, it can sound exhausting. Um, and that's one of the objections I think that people get is that, oh Lord, I just want to go and pick things up at the grocery store and I don't want to have to make a separate trip to the farmer's market. And do I really have to think about every damn thing I buy and so on? And there are limits to what we can do, especially because the economy is so structured uh, in such a way to encourage us not to think about these things. But um, ultimately, the, I think the, the key word here is joy. Uh, and the kind of joy that you get uh, in, um, you know, visiting the farmer's market and having a, a concrete relationship with somebody, the joy that you get from growing your own stuff or making your own stuff. Um, I make my own beer, for example, and it, and it brings me uh, great, uh, great joy. But ultimately, um, that I think it has to have the final word that this is not all about a guilt trip about how bad we are and the choices we make are bad and we need to change these bad choices but it's rather the encouragement of creating uh, economic spaces and ultimately trying to create a whole economy uh, where people are uh, where people flourish right and uh, where it's a, a, a joyful kind of thing uh, and not uh, an exploitative kind of thing. And speaking of desire, I mean, people do have that desire. We saw that with the the uh, explosion of sourdough baking during the COVID pandemic. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is not a natural thing to have to force yourself into. No, it's the natural thing, right? Yeah, we've been forced 
uh, unnaturally uh, into a different kind of economy. Yep. This has been a really wonderful conversation and um, just I hope to encourage everyone who's listening to get to know Dr. Kavanaugh's work and um, we're really excited to maybe talk to you again when the new book is released. And uh, thanks again for, um, I don't know, introducing so many people to these ideas. Sure, yeah, the, this being consumed is, uh, it has two virtues, it's short and it's cheap. It's only like 110 pages and it costs like 12 bucks or something. Yeah, don't buy it on Amazon. And our listeners now know the producer. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine or for $99 a year, you can become a member of plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits from free books to regular calls with the editors, to invitations, to special events and the occasional gift. Go to plow.com to learn more. On our next episode, I'll be talking with Claire Stober and Mariana Wright about giving up all one's money.